Welcome to the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Smelser. The Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast is the shared journey of building a real estate investment property business from square one. Join me as we learn together how to conquer the real estate game to reach financial freedom. Together, we will learn from people in all areas of real estate and business in our personal trek towards escaping the rat race. Be you, do the work you love, play the long game. Ladies and gents, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Daily Real Estate Investor. Man, I've got a good episode for you today. Today, I'm interviewing Chris Grinzig. Chris is with Toro Real Estate Partners. Chris is in his 20s and absolutely killing it, man. This guy is legit. He is out there dominating and you just got to take some notes. This guy's a grinder and he's out there making it happen. He started off brokering stocks and said he couldn't sleep at night because he just wasn't on board with what was going on in that world and ended up moving over to real estate. Good decision in my mind. Man, he has done some some really good deals. He started off flipping, didn't really enjoy that so much, moved over into multifamily, which I love, and has done some syndication deals, has hundreds of units, has hundreds of units under contract, And man, this guy is knocking it out of the park. I think you guys are going to love today's episode. Listen up as Chris gives us some advice and shares his journey. Yeah, sit back, relax, and have a rotten time. Chris, let's dive in, man. Kind of tell us about you and kind of give us the quick overview on how you got into this whole game. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, first of all, you're you're flattering me, so I I appreciate that. You're making (laughs) me blush on the other end. Um, But yeah, so I am, uh, I'm I'm 26. I'm out of New York. I live in Brooklyn, work in Long Island, grew up here. I've only spent one year outside. That was in Massachusetts. That was, uh, I graduated college in 2014. Anyone who knows me, I grew up playing soccer, played division one in school Cool. and, you know, coming out of college, like a lot of kids my age, I had no clue what I was going to do. I had no job lined up. I did no internships. I did everything you're basically not supposed to do. (laughs) And I was fortunate enough that my mom actually knew some people and was able to get me a coaching job as the second assistant for a junior varsity team near where I worked, making about $2,000 for the year. So that was my prospect. So it wasn't looking bright. This was my first lesson in it's not what you know, it's who you know. I had a, a friend I was getting into coaching as well and knew somebody that had just gotten a head coaching job for a division two college up in Massachusetts and said, Hey, I've got a buddy who's looking to get into it. You know, would you do it? And, you know, was able to secure that job. So that was my first year out of college, my one year away from New York. It was a really interesting experience. Cool. So where did, where did you play D one soccer? I played for Hofstra university. It's on long Island. Nice. Uh, in Uniondale. So my family was super happy because I wasn't, you know, six, seven hours away. Like some people are on the other side of the country. Yeah. You know, they were able to come to, you know, most, if not all the home games and, yeah. you know, some of the other schools are close by. So that was nice. That's cool. What, um, what position did you play? Mostly in midfield, holding it down, but yeah. you know, kind of did a little bit of everything, did whatever the team need. You know, I wasn't, you know, the best player by all means, but, you know, kind of just played my role and had my fun. So it was good. I played soccer in high school and absolutely loved it. Didn't, didn't play on the college level, but had a blast with it in high school. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. High school is a lot of fun, but college is a, it's a different beast. It takes a different mindset. It's, uh, I'm uh, sure. it's, it's, it's kind of like having a, a job to be perfectly honest. So if you <laughs> yeah, don't love it and you can't grind some days, it, it can be tough. I could see that. I was in Massachusetts. 
I wasn't in love with coaching. You know, I wasn't in love with, you know, being away from family and friends. So I was able to coach at another school and make my way back home. It was at Queens College, based out of Queens. That wasn't obvious. And I needed another job, right? Because most of the other time you did youth coaching or something like that to kind of support college coaching because it pays next to nothing. If anybody has a college coach that's not a big sport or big school, just know they're not getting paid a lot and be thankful that they're doing their job. So looking for another job. And like I said, I was looking to kind of possibly get out of coaching. So I found a job working as a cold caller for stockbrokers. And I know what's going to happen right now is a lot of people that were, you know, 30 years and older, they're going to cringe because stockbroker has a, a very negative connotation for people that kind of went through that whole phase, you know, leading up to the, you know, the meltdown and everything. And I didn't really know it as well. So I kind of went in with a blind eye and kind of naive. And, you know, it was just a paying job that I thought would look good on a resume. I walked in and I was blown away by the environment and the amount of money was there. That was like my first taste of investing. And I didn't really know the true environment of what was going on until, you know, I was about a year, year and a half into it. And that's why I got out. It was a really, really good experience from the standpoint of, you know, getting saying no to 99 times out of 100, you know, how to grind, how to work, you know, how to come in, how to talk to people, how to sell things and just kind of get a taste from from that sense. There's a there's a lot of other things about that environment that I could get into for, you know, 30, 40 minutes that, you know, was the reason I got out. But it was a it was a really good experience from that standpoint. And like I said, there, you know, there was negatives around it that made me get out. And that's where I started looking towards real estate and different other avenues that I could transition into. Sure. What were the high level negatives? Just the quick It was never about what money the client was going to make. It was always what the client was going to make me. It was a very greedy mindset of the employees. And I didn't like that. One of the biggest changing points was I had my aunt come to me when I was about a year into it. And she is unbelievably selfless. She's one of the nicest people. And she came to me and said, Hey, would it help you if I transferred my stock over to you and helped you grow your business? And in that moment, I was like, wow, I don't want your money because I'm so scared I'm going to lose it all. And it was at that point, I was like, all right, I got to get out of here. This is this is not for me. This isn't what I want to do. If I can't even take my family's money when she's giving it up to me on a silver platter, I got to get out. And I can fully say if she came to me today and said, hey, I have $10,000. Can I put it in one of your real estate deals? I would say, yes, 1,000% only if you want to. I'm right. never going to force you. So right. it, it's a totally different mindset. And I feel a thousand percent better about where I'm at today than where I was two, three years ago. And I think it taught me a lot from that perspective of the importance of other people's money and how to treat it. That's great, man. Well, I see, I had a similar experience. I wasn't brokering stocks, but I started off in public accounting and I was working 90 hours a week out of town, just grinding away on this work that I was just bored by. And my managers, we had two senior managers on our team. I remember this, I was down in Houston and they were dating each other and they were having a competition to see who could work more. <laughs> it seemed to me that people were just sitting on the clock. So the client would be charged more money and they're charging out at these ridiculously high rates. And I was just like, man, this does not line up with my sense of ethics and kind of what I want to be doing with exactly. my life. And I didn't feel good about it. Like I get a paycheck and I just felt, I was just like, this isn't, man, this is not what I need to be doing with my life. And I'm like you, like now that I'm doing real estate, I have people approach me saying, Hey, I've got some money to invest. 
you know, and I'm like, Hey, you're, I'm not asking for your money. If you're bringing this to me, like I will help you try to invest it where you want to invest it. But it's weird how that shift has occurred where it's people now are bringing me money and I'm saying, I'm not taking them up on it sometimes because I'm just like, man, I I don't know necessarily what, what you want to do with this. And I don't want to have you put your money somewhere that I'm not crazy about at the moment. But on the flip side, like when I work with some startups and stuff, you're out trying to raise money and nobody's wanting to write you a check, you know, on the real estate side. And I'm sure you're seeing this all the time with your current job, but there's so many people that want to put money into real estate because people understand real estate. You know what I mean? And so it's just, it's been a different experience and I feel good about helping people invest their money when I do. So I definitely relate. It's definitely a very different mindset and something that's more attractive to me. And it's more about, you know, I took a big pay cut, you know, leaving that job. I mean, there was my immediate boss. I watched him make, you know, six figures several months in a row. And that's kind of the trend I was going towards. I took a massive pay cut to leave because I, some nights I just couldn't sleep. And now I feel so much better. So people don't talk about that side of the thing, their comfort level and, you know, just kind of your overall happiness. And I think there's such a, a such a benefit to that necessarily, you know, instead of making a hundred grand, can you make 60 grand a year and just be happy or, you know, anything else? Like it's such a thing that I think is becoming more popular and being more talked about and just experiencing it myself. It's tough to put into words. Yeah. The millennial crowd is really onto this and I think they've watched their parents and grandparents, you know, stay in a job for 40 years, 50 years and not really be that into it sometimes. And by all means, if you're nine, if you love your nine to five and you're brokering stocks and it's lining up with your sense of ethics and stuff, and you're in a good environment, keep doing it, you know, but for those people that are like, man, I feel bad. I can't sleep at night. Like this isn't what I need to be doing. I'm like, don't do it anymore. You know, there's other things out there. That's why I started this podcast, you know? So let's talk about, you left that world and you got into real estate. Let's talk about that transition and what you started off in. Yeah. So about three, four months before I left, I was very unhappy every day. And I was talking to my mom who was also, it's funny that you talk about a nine to five. The last two or three years she worked at her job to get a higher, I guess, pension or whatever, pension or something that she stuck it out for an extra certain time period to get to a certain point where she felt comfortable. And I saw that and I was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. So that was, that was another layer of it. She stuck it out and credit to her. You know, she did what she had to do to reach her goals, you know, but I saw that and I was like, I don't want to do that. So we were kind of in the same place where we were talking and we were trying to get out together. And she heard about one of these companies that was doing coaching for fix and flips or, you know, single family houses, buy them super low, put money into them and then flip out of them, make tons of cash. And it was, you know, we got, you know, hit with the classic pitch, you know, no money down, use other people's money to make a ton of money. And it was super attractive, right? A kid with not a lot of money to his name, you know, luckily no debt because my parents did well, but just needed to transition into it. Got, you know, hook, line and sinker reeled in, you know, went to the event, did the program and tried to, you know, flip houses on the side. And I was hoping that in, you know, four five, six, 12 months, I could be making enough that I would just be able to pay my expenses and then go into that full time, put more time into it. And then obviously start turning a profit, turn it into a real business and stuff like that. So that was kind of what I had hoped. What ended up happening was in three, four, five, six months, we just completely failed at flipping houses. We put all this money into it and 
we didn't flip a single house by us. We've done a couple flips now in the future, partnering with some other people in different areas, but it's just kind of a, a side thing. It's not really anything we focus on or focus on anymore, but just completely failed. So that was a nice wake up call as well. But it was good from the standpoint that it led into the multifamily world just from networking and stuff and meeting other people and just meeting a guy that was willing to, I call it a JV, but it was, it was a JV for knowledge where we were just investors, but we said, Hey, we'll invest, but I want to know everything, you know, and we just grabbed coffee, jumped on calls, answered a bunch of questions that we had and just said, Hey, can we use this as a, you know, a platform to jump off of if we want to do it also. And he said, sure. Didn't get any money back for being on the quote unquote JV but learned the most I've learned in the shortest amount of time by doing that. So it led to that in that regard. So that program, even though it's a, you know, a loss, a write-off and everything like that, 100% worth it from that standpoint. That's a way that I think a lot of real estate investors really gain a lot of momentum or get experience is joining up with somebody that's got experience, that's doing deals and just sitting in and at least learning from them. That seems to be like you said, a really great way to learn a ton in a really short amount of time. And real estate will educate you really quick when you do deals, like to kind of help our listeners that are wanting to flip houses that have never flipped houses, know the risks of flipping houses, because there certainly are risks. What at a high level do you think was the cause of not having success in that? So the, the two causes, first one was the program that we bought was predicated on quick estimates. So it had a spreadsheet, you put in different parameters like the square footage and stuff like that and what needed to be done. And it spit out a number for what that repair estimate would be. If you live near a big city or area that has a ton of people, the estimates are going to be more than what is put into that spreadsheet. It's just the nature of the business. The whole program had quote unquote coaches that were in your area that were already having success that could show you the ropes and help you if you needed. There was nobody within a 30 mile radius that was doing it from this program because the spreadsheet would spit out estimates that were lower than what the real estimates were, just because the labor costs were higher, the holding costs are higher, just stuff like that. So now could we have gone in and tweaked it so that go to five contracts and say, Hey, I've got, what's it going to cost me roughly on a per square footage basis to renovate this bathroom, this kitchen, this, that, and the other. Yes, 100%. But you know that's where I say it's partly an excuse because there are ways around it that we could have done where I think if we were dead set on like, we're going to flip houses, no matter how much it costs us, and how much time, I think we could have figured it out. You know, And I think that's the second thing. It was, we definitely didn't work hard enough to make it work. But there was also like, okay, we just spent $10,000. It doesn't work you know, let's pivot into something else. So it was kind of twofold for us that it was one, it was the the program we bought wasn't quite, you know, if you were, you know, in a smaller town or in the Carolinas or Kentucky or Alabama, I think a thousand percent it would have worked because the estimates probably would have been a lot closer just because the labor was the big one, the labor cost there. But I think we could have also gone in and, you know, used it as a base to jump off of and really worked harder and done this, that, and the other to make it work. So I also think that none of us really had a great contractor to work with or a contractor team or a contractor on our side that we really built out. And I think that was a critical component we were missing at the very beginning, where I think we may have been able to make some of the deals we were looking at work if we put in the time up front to kind of get those systems in place better. 
Sure. You bring up some good points. And and one thing that I think is something that a lot of flippers experience when they start and they, they don't know what they don't know, right? So you get your spreadsheet and it's got all these costs built in. It's kind of telling you, okay, this is how this is going to work. But what you don't know is that those costs don't necessarily apply to your market. So you get in there and you run your numbers and you're like, okay, we're going to be able to make 20 grand on this. And then you go do your deal. And then after you've purchased the house and you're already halfway in the thing, you're like, man, our costs are higher, but it's too late, right? So you're like, okay. And you you end up selling the thing and not making any money. You had this really bad experience. The guys that are making a lot of money and flipping, they've got systems built. They've got teams of contractors. They've got their costs nailed down. They've got systems that they're applying to these things. And they've done this a lot. It's not, they didn't just start off making 40 grand a flip, you know, like these shows on HDTV, that's not what's going to happen for 99% of people who start flipping houses. But if that's all you do and you build your team out and you really nail it down, you drill down, you can get there where you're making really great money at it. The same with the direct mailers. It's like, yeah, you send 10 direct mailers out. You're not going to get 10 deals. Like the people that I know that are doing the direct mailer thing and, and are successful at it, they're sending tons of direct mailers and they're doing them month after month after month after month. And you got to be willing to approach it from that perspective. It's the same with the flipping thing. Like if you're just going to do it on the side and just do one or two here and there, it's probably going to be really hard. Same with the direct mailers. And that's just something I've learned, you know, like we got burned on a flip for the same reason. Like we underestimated our costs, you know, but the good thing is, like you said, that failure prompted you to kind of move over into something you're more interested in. Cause you mentioned like not really 100% wanting to do the flipping thing, just kind of doing it to kind of make some money, but then you worked your way over into multifamily, right? So tell us about that. Getting into flipping led me to learning all the different things, whether it was through podcasts or bigger pockets or just going online or networking events and RIAs and stuff like that. I started being exposed to different avenues and different things. So one of the transitions into that was obviously people started talking about renting out single families and then it was talking about duplexes. And then it was obviously talking about multifamily getting into that space And it just happened to be that we met someone at the time, his name's John Cohen, and it's actually the guy I work for now at Toro, that he was kind of building up his business at the same time. He was doing some stuff where he was buying tax deeds in Philadelphia and flipping them. And we started talking, we were like, oh, that's an interesting avenue to get into. You know, can you go to a, you know, a tax auction, buy a house for $10,000, put 30,000 into it and sell it for a hundred? That's really appealing. You can buy things for pennies on the dollars. Even if you underestimate your cost, there's probably going to be enough cushion on the back end. As long as you don't buy something that's mangled with no floor and no ceiling, you should probably be all right. And then even then you might write off, all right, it's $2,000 we lost. Or I think you only had to put a couple hundred dollars down to buy it. And then you could go check it out. And if it was a, you know, if it was a wash, all right, you lost 300 bucks. If you buy 10 of those and two of them work out, you're going to net a profit. So it was something that was really appealing to us. We went and looked at some of these tax deeds and it was just the rough of the rough. And me and my cousin went down. We spent about probably 12 hours driving around. And then as it started to get dark, we're like, all right, we're, we're out of here. This isn't this isn't for <laughs> us. This, this, this isn't really what we want to do. This is what we signed up for. We don't want to spend every weekend of our lives. My cousin at the time, either getting ready or just had his first kid. I, I forget the exact timing. We were talking, all of us were like, we don't want to spend every weekend going down to Philadelphia, driving 12 hours going into these rougher areas and not what we wanted. So at the same time, John approached us and said, hey, I've got this eight unit in Covington, Kentucky, which is just across the river from Cincinnati. If anybody doesn't know, it's kind of if you think of Manhattan and Brooklyn or Queens, 
Covington is the Brooklyn or Queens of Cincinnati. So it's kind of like that where it was an eight unit he was looking to do. We were going to buy it all cash, renovate it, and then either refinance or sell. We ended up selling it. And he said, you know, would you guys have any interest in investing? I'm looking to raise money. And we were just starting to learn about it. And we just had some money that we were looking to do something with. And we said, all right, yeah, we'll invest, but I want to know everything you know. And he said, fine. And I'm not sure if John actually thought we were going to be as intense as we were, if it was just a way for him to gain some new investors and maybe answers a couple of questions, this, that, and the other. But it ended up turning to, you know, once a week or twice a week, grabbing coffee, jumping on a call, you know, just bugging them as much as we could <laughs> to try to it. learn more. And it ended up turning into a kind of pseudo partnership where, you know, the next time, you know, we went back into Covington, we bought three properties, 17 units. We actually helped. You know, we were on the GP side doing a JV, you know, raising money, finding the deals, doing all that stuff, you know, it led to that. And then also led into the 82 unit we ended up buying in Jacksonville, Florida. It was a way to kind of lever that relationship from the front where you know, we didn't get any monetary value and we were putting money at risk that could make money, not make money, whatever. But even if I had lost all that money, it would have been worth it because it got to the other things and the things I know it was learning from someone who was actually doing it on a deal I was invested in. And I had a vested interest in that. I was willing to put the time and the effort in to make sure that I really understood what was going on. Gotcha. So you're in New York right now at the time of the Cincinnati deal. Were you living in Cincinnati or where were you? No, I'm, I've only been to Cincinnati about three times. Okay. I've been living in New York my whole life, like I said, except that one year I spent in Massachusetts. So it was a totally new concept to buy something out of state and have somebody else manage it. And you just kind of manage the asset and the finances and the investors. And I think that's what was really appealing to me is that it wasn't necessarily, you know, I love going to see property and getting a feeling and seeing what you do with it and finding the comps. I really find that interesting because I think there is a certain feeling you get for certain things like for the company we're doing now we have a 320 unit in jacksonville that i've been getting a lot of flack from some of these investment groups are going to because it's not in the nicest area and five six years ago it was something you probably didn't want to buy in but i've been there and i know what it's going to be that i really feel and i've really tried to communicate that this is going to be a very good deal for whoever decides to put money into it's one of those things that i love and i think that's been very appealing that all right i don't have to go in and necessarily walk through these hoarder houses and stuff with mold and you know this stuff and i know the i know houses don't necessarily have to be that bad it was more appealing from that standpoint that okay it's a little bit more of a professional scene where you've got property managers you've got accountants you've got lenders you've got all this stuff where you know you've got other eyes on it and a little bit kind of a backs up where all right if you had you know if you had the lender come and say hey we're not giving you money for this and your manager come and say what are you doing? You're crazy. You kind of have some of that stuff. As long as you don't have every person in the world telling you, you know, you're doing wrongs, you know, you're probably okay. Now, not saying every deal in the world is going to work, but it was just a little bit more appealing from that standpoint that, you know, you have some other eyes on it, you have some professionalism, you know, you're not necessarily digging in the trenches, swinging hammers or trying to figure things out. You know, you've got some other stuff and, you know, you've got some other, avenues and things you can work on personally. This is a good example of the Michael Gerber e-myth concept of working on your business and not in your business, right? Instead of 
driving around these neighborhoods, going in these properties that are falling apart, you know, as it gets dark and you're fearful that, (laughs) you know, you're going to get mugged or something. You're working on these deals from your office, from another, from another city, because you've got people that can go out there and do those things, the boots on the ground, you know, out there working on those properties for you. You're running the numbers and working on the business, making the important decisions. That's where your greatest value is, is in putting these deals together acquiring these deals, raising equity, that kind of stuff, and letting somebody else go do the low dollar per hour jobs of like, you know, walking the property and getting stuff that's broken, fixed and that kind of stuff. So I love it, man. I own properties out of town as well. And a lot of people say only invest where you live. And I think that's terrible advice. I think it's terrible advice because that limits you, first of all, to the deals that are available to you. Secondly, if you invest out of town, it forces you to form systems and processes for acquiring your deals, getting your deals renovated and managing your deals, which is what's going to make you successful in this anyway. Right. So, yeah. So you did the joint venture deal, the eight unit in Cincinnati, you put equity in, you kind of rode along and and learned a lot. And then that led into kind of a, a partnership or a pseudo partnership that got you three more properties for another 17 units. And those were in Jacksonville. Is that correct? Or where were those? No, those were, those were also in Covington. So at the time we were looking to really grow in Covington to kind of own X amount of properties, you know, getting Y amount of units and really grow a presence that there's a great example. I forget the name of it. There's a, there's a huge company in San Francisco that all they buy basically is like six units and eight units and all this stuff, but they've got different systems and apps and stuff like that, where you know, they don't have the traditional super that lives in the building next door that takes care of the plumbing. You know, they've got an app that if you've got a maintenance request, you just punch it in and then they have different floating guys. You know, we were trying to take a model like that and kind of bring it into a smaller scale where we say, okay, you know, we don't have to buy one 100 unit property. We can buy 106 unit properties or 26 unit properties that are so close together. You know, we can have economies of scale and kind of not take over an area, but we can have a significant impact on a specific area and have a really good business model going out to raise money and you know kind of this that and the other we were buying things cash and then we were trying to do the infamous burst strategy and then just got absolutely wrecked on financing where nobody wanted to lend on it or 100 different things sideways that's a a whole different conversation but that was that was kind of the goal going into it and then we ran into some different issues midway through and we're still dealing with some of those issues that we had to kind of pivot away and look for a different business model, but in the same kind of areas. Gotcha. I would love to hear more about you're buying these in cash. Is this the 17 unit or is this the, which ones were you buying in cash? So everything in Covington, we bought cash renovated with the intention to then refinance out as much money as possible and then go do it again and again and again and again with our own money, with investors money and trying to do all that. What ended up happening was we had a contractor that basically just stole money from us, didn't do the work he was going to say, you know, it cost more than we thought. And then management wasn't efficient as we thought it was going to be, partially because it's a small amount of units. Partially, it was not the best manager that we've ever dealt with. There were a lot of different issues that we ran into in that regard. And like anybody knows, just because you have a certain business plan and you have certain intentions, 50% of the time, you're going to have to pivot in one way or the other and manage whatever is going on in that area. So our full intention was to come in and over 
from start to wherever over the you know 12, 24, 36 months, buy up as much property as we can, improve it, rent it really high, refinance out as much money as we can, and then go do it again, you know, until we just basically own the whole town or <laughs> ran out of money. <laughs> and best laid plans, it didn't go that way. It didn't go how we envisioned. Luckily, we did really well and bought things at a low enough basis and in good areas that we're still doing okay, even with you know, some of the losses from the, you know, the contractor and extra work and going over budget, you know, it's, it, you know, one of the lessons I've learned from doing this is if you buy something right, even if you mess it up, you'll still probably make money. That's never been truer than in this case. Unfortunately, it just hasn't gone how we had hoped, even though it, in our head and when people we were talking to and raising money, it sounded like this fantastic strategy. You had to, to pivot and make the best do and do right by the deal. I feel like this has happened to pretty much everyone that's invested in real estate long enough, right? You get a contractor in there, you know, things start slipping off. They're telling you it's going to be done. They're taking money. They don't, they don't go in there and do the work. You find out about it later when it's too late. And then it ends up being a net negative on your deal. I had the same experience as you. I bought a property at such a low basis that despite the contractor bump in the road, I'll call it. It was probably more than that, but I'll call it a bump in the road. <laughs> we ended up being able to refi out and leaving a little bit of our equity in there, but I still consider it a win because it's cash flowing like crazy and it's in a good area and it's it's appreciating. But I've experienced the same thing. Like we bought it well, we had a problem, but we're still making money on it in spite of that problem because we bought it right. You know, if we had bought that thing and paid too much for it, we would be so screwed. My strategy is looking in my local market first finding the best deals there. If I feel like I'm not finding the deals I want in my local market, then I kind of work out. Like it sounds like you're doing as well with this Jacksonville thing, this 82 unit syndication deal, right? So is that Jacksonville, Florida? Yes. Okay. Kind of work us into that. How are you structuring this syndication deal? How did you find the property? What class is the property? And kind of give us some detail on that. So I'll start with the way we found it. So when we were doing the Covington deals, we started doing a program where kind of how we got involved, we were like, okay, we want to help other people. We started like meetups and doing different things and just networking and all that stuff. Cause myself, my mom, my cousin who kind of helped with the Covington thing, we felt very grateful that we were, had the help that we did and able to transition out. And we wanted to kind of give that back and started doing meetups and networking, all this stuff. So we had a couple people that were investors in the 17 units in Covington that we were helping learn about stuff and do different things. And one of the things we said was, is if you go find a deal and you want to partner, we will partner with you on that. And that was one of the guys that we were helping just decided to start calling around in Jacksonville, Florida. And, you know, it was a market that I know people that had bought in before, and we had a really good manager lined up that we had been talking to in the past, it was just for whatever reason, an area we weren't specifically looking in. And when I say we, it starts to get blurred here because I'm doing things on my own. And I had joined the company I work for now, which is Toro Real Estate Partners, which John Cohen is one of the, the owners of. So when I say we, it was, it's a blend of both. We weren't really looking there at the time for the company or personally. He was able to go in and this was a deal that was being sold by our manager that we were looking to use. So it was, it was a group that was using her to manage. It had been under contract and had fallen out of contract. And the, the guy, his name is Tom Castelli. If anybody hasn't heard, he does a podcast, The Real Estate CPA. They're really good. You guys should go check them out. 
he he just happened to be the first call, brought it to our attention. We were able to move quick, put it under contract because we called Lisa, our manager, and said, hey, should we buy this deal? She was like, hands down, this is an awesome deal. You guys should definitely buy it. You'll cash flow day one. You'll get the debt you're looking for. It's going to be awesome. We were able to just move so quickly because we kind of had somebody looking. We had a manager in place that just luckily happened to already manage it. A couple other people down there that were in the market and were just able to move quickly to put it under contract without it being re-blasted to all these massive lists and just kind of go from there and kind of start that process. So it was a little bit interesting and it was a way I think worked really well because we were able to help somebody else that was looking to get involved and transition over. And Tom's doing some, you know, some different things now on himself. I know he does like a meetup in the city and, you know, he does the podcast stuff and he's uh, an accountant by trade and works for, you know, the real estate CPA guys. And it was a way that he was able to get involved in a deal, get a track record and then transition over into doing, you know, kind of his own stuff that I think just worked really well. And it's a deal that's gone really well for us over the last year or so. That's cool. So for those listeners who are interested in leveling up and getting into multifamily and doing syndication deals, give us some advice on how someone could go about doing that. So the first thing I'll say, if anybody is looking or is getting into, and I'm just going to tailor this to multifamily, but I guess it could be really anything, but kind of the, the syndication sponsor roles, there's, there's two wheels you've got to be turning at all times. It's finding deals and finding money. You've got to have both things going at the same time. And it's not always the easiest because you've got to find a deal that you're confident you can raise money for. And you've got to find money that you're confident you're going to find a deal for. As you have those things two going along, let's say you get into a space where you feel you have the money and then you find a deal. The steps that you need to do is first, you have to have a manager that you've interviewed, you feel confident in and you're willing to work with on early steps. Our managers will go look at 10 deals and we may offer on two or three and we may only win one. So there's a lot of legwork up front that managers know they kind of have to do if they want to win business or they can send people from their company if they're big enough, but you have to establish that relationship early. And especially if it's out of state, you know, kind of help you in that regard. You should always go see the property at some point, right? But if you've got somebody down there where it's a 20 minute drive from their office, you might as well go ask them. And, you know, if they go look at three, four, five deals and you don't close on any, send them a little gift or something too, because that's always nice. That's kind of the first step is having someone go look at it. If there's a broker on the deal, calling the broker, asking them all the you know pertinent questions, getting an understanding for the deal, have somebody go drive it, go understand it, make sure that they tell you everything is great. And then you see it needs new roofs. You, know, you can call the broker back and say, hey, I think it needs all new roofs. And you know that's going to be 200 grand. And why didn't you tell me about this? And they may have a, a real reason or they may not. So having somebody there, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a manager too. It could be your mom, your dad, your uncle, a friend from college or high school that's moved down there. Just say, hey, can you go blind shot this property and tell me what it looks like? Take a few photos. So that way you don't just believe somebody that's trying to sell something to you. So having that resource in the local area, if you're out of state or you know it's a little bit farther away, is paramount to buying a deal that you can feel comfortable in. Absolutely. And and side note, that's what's made me comfortable investing out of state is we've got a guy that we trust, we know really well that I knew before we were even working in real estate. He's been working on these properties as kind of an asset manager in that local market. So that's what makes me comfortable with that. The idea of just willy nilly buying stuff out of state with nobody you trust there and just kind of trusting the local broker that's selling it to you and them, you know, that to me is kind of scary. Then from that standpoint, you're just going to start underwriting the deal. 
you should always ask your manager to underwrite, especially for, you know, for us, a lot of times it's the expense side, making sure that, you know, don't take the broker's numbers, never take the broker's numbers, always ask your manager, they're going to be the ones running the deal, ask what you think it is, and then have a conversation around it. And then why this, why not this, this, that, and the other, then, you know, talking about rents, you know, what's the, you know, if we do this, what can we get rents? You know, if we just do new floors, what can we get? If we do floors and appliances, like look at different things and how much money you can get and you know what's the return on the capital you're going to spend. If it, I'm assuming it's a, a value add deal, which is what 95% of multifamily is today. It's not buying a class A deal and cash flowing. So that's usually the typical conversation. And then it's underwriting and understanding those numbers. Then you've got to talk to your insurance guy who's going to be lining up your insurance, making sure, seeing what that number is going to be. And there's always a little bit of change depending upon the different liabilities and stuff like that. Then you want to talk to a mortgage broker or a bank or whatever on the type of debt you can get and what they think the rate is and the leverage and the length, the terms, all that stuff. You also need to talk to some sort of tax professional because the tax codes are different in every county. Make sure you understand where the taxes are going to and when because that will kill a deal faster than anything else. From there, understanding what equity and money you have and what their return expectations are and the risk profile associated with that and making sure that the deal that you're looking at fits in with those parameters. And if you have really good relationships with them, picking up the phone and say, hey, I'm looking at X, Y, and Z deal. Is this, this, that, and the other? If I got it under contract and I could show you these numbers and you know, if you didn't have any you know, big hurdles you know, to look at, is it something you'd be interested in? And what they're probably gonna say is, if everything checks out and I don't see any big flaws, Yes. Or they may say no, because they've got something going on, right? If you've talked to someone two months ago or a month ago, and they're like, I've got a million dollars, I want to place it. And then you call them and say, ah, that million dollars. Well, you know, my wife was in the hospital and I had to cover the bill and, you know, I don't have as much money. So, or, you know, they went and invested in something else or, you know, there's, there's a million different things that could be going on. So it's as you're looking at deals and as you're thinking about getting, you know, offers in and this, that, and the other, making sure that the you know the money you thought was there is actually still there then it's you know a whole another ball game you know raising the money from there so on the on the debt side on this 82 unit deal what is your lender requiring debt to equity we got 80% we went a freddie small balance loan we got 80% ltv which in today's market you don't even see anymore just because of where cap rates and interest rates are we were lucky that the deal was trending in the right direction. I think by the time we closed, it was like a mid to high six cap on T3 numbers. You know, we were able to get 80%. We got like a four or five rate, seven year fixed with two years interest only. So we just happened to buy it at a good time in the market with a good cap rate, with a good interest rate that the spread was high enough. And you know, we were well and well above you know, the, the coverage ratio required for Freddie that we were able to get the full 80%, which was nice and I don't know if you know anybody that's looking at deals today, you're pretty lucky to get 70, 75% on deals. You know, you don't really get 80% today. Sure. That's yeah. That, that 80% LTV is great. So mm-hmm. is this amortized over 25 years or 30, 30? Oh, that's even better. Cool. Okay. So you've got the 80% debt and 20% equity on this deal. What was the cost of the project? Just ballpark. Yeah. So we bought it for, mid to high 40s a door. We went in with a renovation plan to put about $360,000 into it. I forget offhand what that is per door, but we're all in at about low to mid 50s a door. And it was coming in and clean up some exterior work, 
making the the property look a little bit nicer. The last group that had owned it for about two or three years, they came in with a big exterior plan and they painted all the buildings. They put in new roofs, took the office from a unit into one of the storage units. They converted two storage units into two studio apartments. They did a lot of that stuff and upgraded a few units. And our plan was to come in and kind of say, all right, they've done all the grunt work. We're going to come in and kind of now make it look nice instead of just okay. And then we're going to start renovating units and really continue to push some of the rent that we've seen on top of the organic rent growth that Jacksonville has seen for the last two years, which has been phenomenal. That's great. You're in for $50,000 a door, roughly. We've got 82 units. So that gives me 4.1 million, roughly, for the cost of the project. It's a little bit higher just with some other stuff like that, but good to talk about. So generally speaking, you know, 4.1, give or take. And then you got to come up with 20% equity on that. So, well, we had to come up with 20% of the purchase and then any additional capital. Gotcha. Okay. I think our loan is about just over 3 million. So we raised about 1.3 or 1.4 million. Okay. So walk us through raising equity for this. Did you already have a list of investors that were interested in deals like this that you just reached out to, or how do you go about raising 1.3 million for something like this? It was a little bit interesting. We did this on the side and then also worked for a larger company as well. So I have some contacts for some different crowdfunding and equity groups and stuff like that. This was, we kind of did a hybrid between, you know, friends, family, acquaintances. And then we actually went the, the crowdfunding route and did a deal with Realty Shares. What's your holding period on this 82 unit deal? What are you wanting to sell it in five years or what are you thinking? So originally our intention, you know, we got a seven year loan. We bought a slightly higher rate to do a soft step down instead of a defeasance payment. So what that means is a uh, defeasance payment is an advanced calculation by the lender that says what interest rate are we at and what are interest rates today and what is your payment going to be for paying off the loan earlier based on what we can take that money and lend it out today. So it's an unknown number that you're going to pay in the future and could be very, very high or it could be very, very low, right? If, if interest rates are significantly higher, right? If they've doubled in three years, your payment's going to be lower because theoretically they can go out and lend that money at a higher rate and make more money. If interest rates have gone down, your payment's going to be higher because they've got a better rate in this deal than they would if they go lend it. So it's not that simple, but there's a whole calculation. We took like 10 extra basis points. So we probably could have had like a 4-4 rate. We went to like a 4-5-4 just so we knew what our prepayment was going to be. So it was like in the first two years, it was a 3% penalty. The next two was 2%. And then the last year was a 1% penalty. I think like the last six months of the loan, there's no penalty to sell. That rate seems really good. Under 5%. That's crazy. Yeah. So at the time it was, you know, I think we caught it right as there was a little dip in rates as well. And it was just, you know, rates have gone up a good amount in the past year. So at the time, you know, it was a pretty good rate. You know, I wouldn't say it was great by any means. It's not like we got a steal from a lender. That doesn't happen. It was just the market at the time was lower and you've seen it gone up. Now today on that same deal, if we bought it today, we probably would have only gotten, if I had to guess, 75% and we'll probably be at like five, five and a quarter, 30 year amort, two years interest only. So it is a nice thing, but it's the same thing I was talking about earlier because we bought that deal right. We're all in at low 50s a door. There's several examples of deals selling at 65, 70. You know, there's a deal on the market that's larger, but it's around the corner selling for 80 a door. We've got significant upside on the back end that we're seriously considering selling within the next 12 months 
because we just think there's so much upside on that, even though our cash flow has been great. We'll probably hit 9 10% for our first year, and we'll probably be well into double digits going into next year, assuming nothing happens to the property and we stay occupied and all that good stuff. It could be a nice $2 million profit, huh? Based on what I'm... Oh, it would, yeah. it would be... I mean, it could be a very healthy profit for everyone. It really just depends on the market and cap rate and all that stuff. So it, it is a conversation we're having and something we look at with all our deals. I love it, man. This has been awesome. Let's transition into our random time for random questions. You ready for this? Sure. Yeah. All right. What is the best business book you can recommend that you believe the listeners have not read? <laughs> so that, that was probably the worst question to ask me. I don't read books. I I don't like books. I try to read them. Six months ago, I bought like 10 books. I'm like, all right, I'm going to read a book a month. I'm just going to sit down. They've just been collecting dust in my apartment. It was an absolute waste of money. So you're, you asked me the worst possible question. My advice, go listen to podcasts and go to networking. Okay, cool. I like that answer. Um, okay, what was your favorite video game as a kid? Favorite video game as a kid? You're 26. I know you played video games. Oh, I still do. It's <laughs> yeah. probably... Probably the the Tony Hawk series. Those are very popular in my childhood. What, what games do you play now? Just curious. Mostly sports games. So like 2K, FIFA. Like I said, big soccer guy. So. Our last question. What advice can you give an aspiring real estate entrepreneur? It would be two things. One would be just to try different things, fail, and then make it better. And the second one would be find somebody who's already doing what you want to do and find out as much as you can from them. Whether it's giving up your time, whether it's giving up your money, whether it's pestering them until they help you or just watching what they do and try to replicate it. Those are the two best things. You're going to try things and fail. We're getting ready to try like six different things going into the new year, like direct mail and different things like that, just to try to see if we can shake free some deals we might not see otherwise. You know, there's a lot of different things we're going to try and I'm convinced we're going to fail at all of them, but I still want to try because if one of them hits and I get one deal, it's all going to pay off. Right. So just try things and fail. And then also try to replicate things other people are doing. And maybe it's through books, whether it's through podcasts or whether it's physically meeting someone or whether it's working for someone. It's There's plenty of people that are doing that you want to do. Just go out there and do what they're doing and replicate it. Don't need to reinvent the wheel. I love it, man. Failing is such a big part of this and learning from the failure and then you know just sticking your neck out there and going for it and learning from others. That's why I love podcasts so much. You just get to sit in and listen to, to people like yourself talking about their experiences and sharing information that you can learn from. It's awesome. So Chris, how can people get in touch with you? A couple best ways. Obviously, like you said, we got in touch on Instagram. My public account is Grenzig, C-R-E-G-R-E-N-Z-I-G-C-R-E, like commercial real estate. Also, my email is chris at tororep.com, C-H-R-I-S at tororep, T-O-R-O-R-E-P.com. Cool, man. Well, hey, thanks a million. Let's keep in touch. want to continue to hear about your deals and maybe we can do a deal together sometime. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me on. All right, man. Thanks. Catch you later. See ya. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'd love to connect with you. So please hit me up on Instagram at Daily Real Estate Investor or on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. If you want to know more about this episode, check out our show notes along with the blog at dailyrealestateinvestor.com. And don't forget to sign up for the mailing list while you're there. We'll keep you up to date on the book in the works as well as new episodes. And tune in next time for another episode of The Daily Real Estate Investor. And do me a massive favor. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review for me and share the show with your friends. Your support means the absolute world to me. 
and know that I will do everything within my power to help you reach financial freedom through real estate investing. I love you each and believe you're capable of far more than you think possible.